Welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks meet the geeks and we solve all the world's problems. In today's episode, we speak with Kamba Choni, who's an old friend, but also a great hero of mine. Kamba has done some truly great work in his career, and as you will hear, some of it has leveraged the power of sport. Kamba was the captain of the last Stanford University men's basketball team to play in the NCAA Final Four way back in 1998, but his achievements after that have been just as impressive. So listen in to him describe why sports have been powerful forces in his life, as a bridge between people, as a lever to raise money for worthwhile causes, and as a metaphor for life itself. Is it okay if I chew for 30 more seconds? Absolutely. Okay. Take as much time as you need. Far be it from me to stop you from eating from my silly little corner of the internet podcast. I hope it's something good. Leftover Chinese salad. Ooh, that sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't like it, ask your mom. You like this sweatshirt? I do. Isn't that funny? (laughs) I have to admit, though, when my wife bought it for me, because, of course, she bought it for me, because she doesn't want me to make any decisions. Probably a smart move on her part, but I didn't get it. I didn't get the joke at first. I was like, ask your mom, what? I don't understand. I was really slow, but I'm glad you picked it up pretty quick. Yes, it's it's a refrain I often say. <laughs> yeah, I bet. My kids can't read yet, so they don't understand the sweatshirt. Mm, but that's someday, actually what I was gonna ask. Yeah, but someday they're gonna find it really funny. Nice, how are you doing? Your eyes better? My eyes better, look at me. I'm like a brand new man, yeah. But uh, still got the beard. Nice. (laughs) No, don't let that go without some real thought. Well, it's funny because I was talking to um, somebody recently and I I said, measuring time with it, like each uh, month that goes by grows like a half a centimeter or something like that. But I think when everything's back to normal, whatever that means, whenever everybody's able to give anybody they want to hug, I think that'll be maybe the time to share. That'd be a good symbolic time. Nice. Although your kids may not recognize you. they won't but of course that can be a good thing too i can just wear the sweatshirt <laughs> by then they'll be able to read and i can yes. just say ask your mom <laughs> the new guy how about this yeah. yeah who's this guy ask your mom kava thank you so much for doing this again i know the well, first time didn't work out because of my idiocy with technology but i wanted to to talk a little bit about the march madness to start because of course you played in the final four and and this year's final four was unlike any other and so I'm just curious, I know you told me your bracket was busted pretty early, but how was the tournament for you this year? The tournament was great. So uh, I appreciate having a tournament. I worry about the student athletes' health mm-hmm. issues in that, but that, <laughs> that notwithstanding, I actually thought it was a great tournament. Lots of upsets, which is always fun. Unfortunately for me personally, that meant there was no Iowa versus Illinois in the final. In <laughs> fact, they were both out after the second round. But it, and, and I really liked the idea of keeping it contained to one place mm-hmm. for this moment. But it was, you know, it, it also brings back memories. And the further away I get from when our teams were playing, the bigger a deal it is to me. Right. And the one precision I will add is that I was on a team that went to the final four. 
<laughs> I didn't get to step on the court other than the warm-ups and the practice and the halftime part. Uh, yeah. Didn't, didn't log a minute. Yeah, but I'm going to just push back on that comment because you went to the Final Four and you went to the Final Four and that's all that needs to be said. So I had a fantastic seat. I do have to tell <laughs> yeah, you, they were you individual. They were very plush. And it was in the Alamo Dome. So yeah. it was bigger than any place I had played before. So it just, the spectacle of it was amazing. I bet, I bet, must've been incredible. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this whole not NCAA property, the hashtag that was going around with the basketball players this year. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I didn't even see that. But again, now that I'm not wide-eyed and just a little puppy out there thinking, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. I have a lot of thoughts about the structure of the NCAA. And it seems a bit farcical to me for the mm -hmm. revenue generating mm -hmm. sports because the promise that I think should be out there, which is students graduating Absolutely. and being set up in the way that graduating from college typically sets up folks for success down the line. I don't think that promise is being kept. And I think it's a pretty transparent charade at this point, mm -hmm. especially again, especially for football and men's basketball. If they followed through on that, and that really was the goal, as opposed to maximizing revenues, which I do think is the goal. If it really was around getting an education that helps students with their lives, I'd be all in. It's just, I just don't believe it in the hypocrisy of some of the, the actions that are taken. Do Absolutely. as I say, not as I do. It, it's it, I find it challenging at this Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Yeah, there's not the level of respect afforded to the individual athletes as there should be. The NCAA represents the universities and their bottom lines primarily. And that creates a, a massive conflict because I agree with you. I think the degree is what is the promise. But at a lot of places, if they get to that point where they get the degree, what have they learned if they're taking rocks for jocks? I know when you were at Stanford, you were studying human biology. And I know you told me last time we spoke that it it, it was a, a shot to the ego because you had come into Stanford with a 4.0 and you took some classes at Stanford that were really challenging and it, you weren't able to continue to have that 4.0. So I wonder what you think about the balance between uh, athletics and, and academics for college athletes. Yeah, again, I do segregate in my mind the the real revenue generating, like the bigger revenue generating sports and others. And I think for the others, there isn't necessarily the push for me, if I had been really dialed in as a 14 year old mm -hmm. would have been, I want to make the NBA. I want to make the NBA. I want to make the NBA. Why? Because I can make a lot of money doing it. That's going to be life changing for me. If I'm playing field hockey, or I'm playing even some of the bigger ones like men's volleyball, my goal isn't, hey, I'm going to be a multimillionaire potentially from this sport. I, I know a lot of guys who played volleyball overseas and they make a good living from it, mm -hmm. but it's not the generationally transformational wealth that NFL and NBA provide. And so I think there's a different view that potential NBA, NFL folks go into it with. But it, End of day, I think a lot of things come down to what is your personal philosophy? What do I think I'm here for? Mm -hmm. And sports have always been a means to an end. And that end has always been about making things better or leaving them better than I found them. Mm -hmm. And I think right now I work at Stanford's Haas Center for Public Service and Civic Engagement. And it's how do we get students to think about public service and civic engagement? And we have them do these things because that helps make them 
more educated, engaged, and ethical global citizens. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's an outcome I care about even more so than the degree. I think athletics is probably the best experiential education tool and leadership development tool that's out there. I'm biased because I, I grew up with it. But if that were the focus, like how do we take the lessons we learn from sports and have those transform into our lives so we can be great global citizens? That would be, could you imagine? That would that be would, fantastic. Amit. That would be amazing. I still remember I was hot stuff my senior year in, mm -hmm. in, in basketball. And I walked in with the other teammate of mine who was phenomenal, a guy named Kylie Wong, who ended up playing at Stanford, ended up playing for the Minnesota Vikings and Houston Texans for 10, 10 or so years. Mm -hmm. So like actually made it. He and I walk in at 3.55 for a 4 p.m. practice. And our coach says, hey, Kylie, come, but come over here. So we walk over there, arrogant, strutting. And he <laughs> says, what time is practice? And we say, four o'clock, still looking him in the eye. And his tone changes. He says, so what time does that mean we get here? Mm -hmm. And we both looked down, could not keep eye contact. And we said, 345, sir, because he was very big on Lombardi time. Mm -hmm. Aaron, guess who is on time to things to this day? It's me Absolutely. because of what I learned through sports. And there are, I have dozens of stories like that where something got truly ingrained because of sports. And I think mm -hmm. that's, to me, that's the power of sport. Thank you so much. And let's go back then to the beginning of sports for you when you were growing up. I know uh, you spent a, a few years, your first few years in Congo, and then uh, your family moved to Oregon. And tell me about your first engagement with sports when you first experienced playing a sport or watching a sport or what coaches you had, that kind of thing. I first started playing organized sports at the end of second grade. That's what it was back when I grew up. You didn't have to start as a two-year-old like you have to nowadays, <laughs> right. um, which is absurd. But I started at the end of second grade. I'm the third of five kids, so I'm the middle. And I had seen my older siblings play sports. But because there were five kids, sports were a physical outlet to drain energy from the kids right. so that we weren't so darn rambunctious in the house. I'm pretty sure that was part of my parents' goal, which is why we did sports like soccer, which is why we did sports like basketball, which is why we did sports like track. Right on. Um, yeah, exactly. You can figure out the theme from that. So I played at the end of second grade. I remember that. It was fun. But it was always sports to me. It was never athletics. There was mm -hmm. nothing more than, hey, it is spring, I play soccer. It is summer, I do track. It is fall, I do bat. Like, it was just seasonal and it, it kept me active. That's all I thought of sports as. And I enjoyed doing different things. First time I played basketball was third grade. And that was a big deal to me because I don't think, it, yeah, no one else in my family had played. Mm -hmm. So even though the older siblings were a few years older, they hadn't played basketball. They didn't, they weren't into it. And I love, again, being the middle of five, I'm always looking for my own thing and trying to carve out my own space that's unique. Sure. And basketball was that to me. And I, Aaron, I fell in love with it. Like the first time I dribbled a basketball, I still remember, I think I told you, I, I still remember the first basketball I had. Yes. My dad, who banned us from playing US football and banned us from playing baseball, he said, you're not going to play them because that's not part of your heritage. Okay. He allowed basketball. And it was funny because he knew nothing about it other than Dr. J. So <laughs> in third grade, 
he had me pull my socks all the way up. Oh, That's this what he saw Dr. J do. And then he said, when you're doing a layup, here's how you do it. And would take these gigantic long steps. Remember how Dr. J could sure, glide for Sure, of course. And then he taught me to shoot it underhand, which is the worst thing you're supposed to teach a kid. <laughs> like teach him overhand. But I still remember going and like him teaching me and saying, long step. And so I got basketball was fun for me. And it also ended up part of the reason I think I was good at it, other than being pretty blessed athletically. And I would had a quick mind that could help where I had some deficits physically. Like I could mm -hmm. think my way to, to a bit more quickness is there was a lot going on in my house mm -hmm. and outside where the basketball hoop was at least starting in fourth grade, it, it was my salvation. It was my mm -hmm. refuge. It was my quiet space where there weren't people yelling there. There wasn't all the commotion. It was just me the basket and a basketball and I could use my imagination or not. It was like, I, I get warm feelings when I think about basketball. That's awesome, Kava. And tell listeners about that basketball because I think that's a fantastic story. So mind you, one of five, dad's a middle school teacher, mom works at the school district in the kind of financial operations type side of things. And we didn't have a lot growing up. I often say we were upper, lower class, but we were never for wanting for anything, but like we, I didn't get the nicest shoes. Like we'd go to Kmart to get stuff like, and mm -hmm. it wasn't a big deal to me. I was like, oh, great. I get new stuff. That's wonderful. Sure. But I got a basketball and it must've been six ninety nine or something like that. But it was one of these rubber balls that has the bumps on them. And then the grooves, I played with my first ball so much that it actually, all the bumps were off it to the point where I could palm it like with three fingers because it was so slick. And the lacing, like the, when you shoot with the laces, that part, I played with it so much that broke apart and I could see the stitching on the inside. But I kept playing with it because whatever I, like I wanted to. And I ended up when my parents, I think probably middle schoolish, so sixth, seventh ish grade, they started saying, oh, Kamba really likes basketball. That can be his gift every year. We can get him a new basketball. And so I still remember the one that was like the Atlanta Hawks. So it had mm -hmm. yellow and red, but mm -hmm. instead of eight panels, it had 16, which when I spun it, it's sorry about the, but it's hard to see, but like when I would shoot it and it would spin, it, it ended up being like this weird little kaleidoscope, which is probably oh. one of the reasons I have a really tight spin on my shots is I love just watching the ball spin around like that. How interesting. Yeah. So it's almost like, it was almost like a thing of beauty for you to watch the ball spin. Yeah. Um, I was teaching my younger brother who's seven years, my junior. Okay. I, I would pass him the ball and I always pass it with the laces because that way the shooter doesn't have to realign. Of course. And the way the ball lands on the rim, if it has the laces, it, it's just more forgiving. That's why I do it. Otherwise I just throw it any old way. And I still remember him throwing me the ball and it wasn't with the laces and he's seven years younger. So he must've been seven years old. And I fire him back a pass, chest pass. And it's like, throw it to me with the laces. And he didn't do it back to him. Throw it to me with the lace. Like, like it, it was a point of, of, of pride and it was like overly meticulous. I'm sure there was a little obsessive compulsive stuff leaking out there as well. But basketball was beautiful. The way people move, my wife makes fun of me now because I told her I like ballet. Uh -huh. It. I went and saw, I've only seen one thing live and it was 
one of the most athletic things I've ever seen, Aaron. Absolutely, was, it is. The way that the guys in particular were jumping, that to me looks like Michael Jordan in the, it, 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 I just, I, yes, there's something aesthetically pleasing to me just about beautiful athletics. And I thought basketball was particularly beautiful. So it seems pretty clear that sports had pretty considerable power for you growing up, particularly as a refuge, a thing of beauty. And then you get into playing team sports. Was it a, a way to fit in and belong and join the group? Or was it, I think you had told me the last time that it was more about getting where you wanted to go. You realized early on you could use sports as your, your tool. Yeah. So sports were an outlet for me. Even as a young kid, I knew that I liked the ability to stop the rest of the world and just do sports, whether that be practice or a game. And I liked that. It, it was uh, kind of how uh, my son reads a lot of fantasy novels. I mm -hmm. think it's very similar. So it was an escape for me, just a very physical escape. Of course. I just did sports because that's where my parents put me into. But then I realized I like it. At a certain point, I kept hearing that I was good at it. I didn't think about it. I just, I would go out there and play. And I think my natural personality is where there's a void, I try to step in, mm -hmm. uh, particularly around leadership. Mm -hmm. And so sports were awesome for that because I could be the captain or I could be the point guard or I was in soccer, I was the center midfielder. I like to control things, but in a way that set up other people. That, that mm -hmm. has always been my favorite. And that's, I think, still a through line to what I do today. Mm -hmm. but I I remember I had a seventh grade basketball coach, Rich Bray, who's unfortunately passed away, but he was the first time I started thinking that sports and brain for me go together. I, I was a bit of a little firecracker. Like I kept things very calm most of the time, but in sports, I could let go of that a little bit more. And I was sure. competitive. Oh, you've played okay. with me, Combi, I'm the same way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. It's, it's a contained place to not be contained. Yeah, that's um, right. And then once we go back out, then we're our normal kind of more steady state. But I remember he had all of us. I was a point guard at that point. So one through five, so short guys through tall guys. So I was the shortest or one of the shortest on the team. He said, we had to learn to do a drop step, a very technical move for big people down on the block near the basket. Mm -hmm. And I did it. And I, I said, why do I have to do this coach? popping off as per normal without breaking stride. He said, come up to the top of the key. He went up to the top of the key, had me in a defensive position and drop stepped by me and did a layup, just a two dribbles and did a layup. And I was like, Oh, that's amazing. So I can take this from here, move it over here. And I think that started a lot of sparks of, well, what can I do over here? How do I think through the game? Mm -hmm. And the bigger part for me, Aaron was, in fourth grade, it was a big year for us as a family because we we used to go to the department every year. You'd do a new lease and go to the next place. Mm -hmm. We bought a house. And so we got the house and it we had to move from one school that I had been in all through K through four to a new school. And it made me stop and think about what do I want, which is very weird for a nine-year-old, I think, to think about what is life for and what am I doing? Mm -hmm. And it was very clear to me that I wanted to go beyond Eugene. And I actually mm -hmm. grew up just on the outskirts of Eugene in a place called Santa Clara, which was right next to a town called Junction City, if that gives mm -hmm. you any indication what sort of <laughs> okay. place it was. Sure. But we were closer to the cow fields than the University of Oregon. Okay. So it was very rural. And I knew at that point, I was like, I, I want to do something else. And I thought, how do I do something else? 
And I knew enough from school because my parents kept their degrees. They hung them up on the walls mm -hmm. just as a reminder to us that college is important. I thought, I wonder if like them, I can get a scholarship to college. Okay, how do I do that? And started going through the mental calculus of, well, if I do well in school, whatever I thought that meant, and I do these other things, maybe I'll have a better chance of determining where I go. And as I got older, especially in high school, knowing that I was good with grades, keeping those up, if I could do well on my exams and I had great extracurriculars of which I considered sports to be mm -hmm. one. Of course. I thought I should be able to write my own ticket where I wanna go. And when you're in high school, particularly with all the distractions and temptations that go with being in high, that must've been pretty challenging at times to stay on that that path. Or were you just really, you had blindfolds on and you were head down and, or blinders, I should say. I had blindfold as well. <laughs> no, I was, I'm very stubborn. And I saw in my father decisions around life decisions that I said, I am not going to make those decisions. So mm -hmm. the things that a lot of high schoolers are trying to figure out and going out and partying and having fun and that sort, I was very clear that I am, I know the choices I am making and they're very boring in retrospect, but those are the choices I want to make because I don't want to end up making the down that path. So for me, it probably not the answer you were expecting or wanting, but it was not hard at all. I was very delayed gratification oriented. It mm -hmm. was, I am putting in my time now in ninth grade because I know that's gonna help me get to college. Mm -hmm. I am putting my time in 10th grade and taking the tough courses and doing basketball and being sophomore class treasurer because it's gonna help me get to where I wanna. I was very singularly focused. And again, sports were just one of the avenues right. that was helping me get to where I wanted to get. I wish I had been a little more imaginative mm -hmm. and thought about what's beyond college. I, I didn't actually think beyond that. Like I got on the Stanford campus and it was a bit, oh, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, I'll be a doctor because I think that's what I'm supposed to do. So that I wish I had set my sights out a little further or maybe done some reflection maybe later in high school and or earlier in college about well, what's, the, what's beyond this. Uh-huh. That's very interesting. And so you're at Stanford and you become the captain of the basketball team. And I know that this was um, something that your peers nominated you to be. Is that right? It is. Yeah. So my first year I was in over my head and I knew it and I was a project. That's fine. My sophomore year, about halfway through basketball started to click and I understood it. By my junior year, I thought I, I can play at the Pac-10 level. And the Pac-10 was by far the best league at that point. Freshman year, UCLA won. Sophomore year, no one. Junior year, Arizona won. And senior year, we made it to the Final Four. Like We were an amazing conference right. back then. Right. And not to mention UCLA, your UCLA teams. They were always really good, even after the O'Bannons left. But junior year, it was clear that I wasn't probably going to play. So I actually toyed with the idea of transferring. I wonder if I would have transferred in this new climate where it's a lot easier. Right. Probably not. Because again, at that point, I thought basketball is not going to be how I earn my living. You realize that at that point already. Absolutely. And I, I had this inkling, Aaron, that maybe I'll go to the Philippines and play in the 6-4 and under league or something like that for uh -huh. a couple of years see the world, get sure. a little bit of pocket change, but it was, that was never going to be my life or my, how I was defined. So I was always thinking, what is that other thing? But it meant a lot that even if the coaches didn't play me, that 
my teammates said, hey, we see some leadership qualities from you, whether that be me leading from the middle or leading from the back, which is more where I was. Mm -hmm. But it was, I think coaches also thought me pretty responsible because my junior year, we always had two captains and one of them who was destined to go play in the NBA, he didn't want to take on some of those other things that he had to do that went along with it. So there was this group they were supposed to go to of all the captains from all the sports teams at Stanford. So you're talking a group of 70 or so, mm -hmm. like a couple of captains for 36 sports back then. And so coach actually said, hey, Brevin's not going to show up to this. Can you go there instead? So even as a junior, I know that they saw that in me, that I took care of my business. I got the Howie Dalmar Coaches Award two years in a row. That's great. I think it's the Repentance Award. Like, we're really sorry we didn't play you as much as we <laughs> think we should have. That's one way to look at it. The other way is I lived up to the ideals that they expected of Stanford basketball players. And, and, yeah. and so for my teammates to say, hey, even though you're not the raw, boisterous pair of the captains, we think you have a lot to offer and we nominate you with this kind of title and, and this role. And have... I know you had mentioned that there was a through line to from the way that you carry yourself growing up and then it, and then to Stanford in your career. I wonder if like becoming nominated captain of the team was um, a watershed moment of, of, of some kind in your journey as a leader. I think it was another exit. Sorry, the picture I had was a highway and it's just another one of the stops along the way. I told you last time, so family of seven, so mm -hmm. two, two parents and five kids, four of us close in age and one happy outcome. And I, I would <laughs> never say that to him, probably not. But so we had an oval table that everyone could fit around. So it was like two, four, five, six, and then the high chair. But my dad never ate with us because he wanted to eat his Congolese food and he would make his bidia and have his chiteku and he'd go into a different room and eat. Yes, and you said that. that is... so, so there was always that place at the be at the head of the table. And even though I'm the third, I always thought, Aaron, well, if no one else is going there, I should be there. Fast forward, I wrote, I wanted to be class mayor. I think it was in third grade. And I wrote a speech that I gave so that I could become the class mayor. I, in eighth grade, I think I was president for the middle school. I was, we didn't really have captains and like that age, but in high school, I was the captain of the basketball team and the mm -hmm. soccer team. And I was student body president. It just, it started to feel like that is part of who I am. Like mm. I, and it isn't necessarily, I don't necessarily want to control things. Although I am a control enthusiast, I don't have to. I just like being at the table when decisions are being made. Sure. Like I have the, we used to have the, the adult Thanksgiving day table. And then the kids table, I always wanted to be the adults table. Why mm -hmm. not? So I could drink the wine. It was, I want to be part of those conversations mm. and that I've continued with that. And it was very interesting that as I got older and became a nonprofit exec, and I, I ended up being executive director pretty quickly. I never thought about being on a board of directors or an advisory mm. board of directors. Why? Because I'm not supposed to. And then I had an a year long experience where I was part of a cohort and they exposed us to things with the goal of becoming a board member. And okay. I was in my early thirties there. And I was like, wait, why shouldn't I be at this table? Like mm -hmm. I should be in these conversations. So it, it was really weird that that mentality hadn't followed over to that piece. But now 
and hopefully moving forward, I'm going to be an advisory board member forever. Why? Because I like being part of the conversations. I like asking questions. If I get to be in leading from the front, the middle or the back, fine. I just like asking questions and I do have this insatiable, how do I, how do we get the most out of people? And how do we mm-hmm. get the most out of an organization? And I think mm-hmm. sports were, sports, sports was, I could think of it singular or plural, sorry. Sports was <laughs> a way for me to practice that and do that. And so it start, it's carried over in other, in other facets. You're uh, afflicted by the same problem I have. We lived in England. And so we talk about sport versus sports, and then we have to change the, the verb conjugation. So I have that same problem that happens to me. So let's, uh, let's move to that period. So you and I meet when we're in London, you're doing your master's degree, and you are coming to London, I think, pretty soon after doing the Peace Corps for a couple of years in Gabon. I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit, because yeah, I always so- thought that was so interesting that you had done that. Yeah, so it was an incredibly selfish thing to do, if I'm being honest. I I did not think about, I did it because it was right in front of me and it made sense to me because I grew up speaking French for the first three years of my life. I don't remember it as much as a three-year-old speaks, but I don't remember it, but it was in there somewhere. I thought, I want to learn to speak French. Second is, I want to travel. And third, I want something that looks good on the resume, Mm -hmm. whether I really live up to it or not, that was not part of the calculus and Peace Corps fit those. And the fact that I got to go to where my father's from or two countries away, right. but I, I had phenomenal, it was so important for me to have that experience at that time. Having been a pampered basketball player at Stanford where people are doing our sports laundry for us, I get per diem to travel. I get as many pair of shoes as I want. Like I was spoiled. I, I didn't have to pay for books. I just had to sign a little card and I got as many books as I wanted to then go and see that the world is not that same way was mm-hmm. very important to hold a pendulum back to reality and what mm-hmm. the, the real world is like. And then to do it in a place where I got to see where half of me was from phenomenal experience. Aaron. Like from when I went to training, there was one of the men there was Congolese, one of the teachers. And so he took me under his wing cause he knew my name. And he said, this is going to sound weird, but I want to introduce you to this woman who lives in town. He introduced me to the woman, Aaron. She was my cousin. You're kidding. My father said, oh, your cousin is somewhere in the country. I don't know where. Happened to be where we were doing training. And she said, I remember you when you were small enough that I could carry you. So she was like 10 or 12 years older than me and was my babysitter. So I had that experience. I also had the deeply embedded unconscious experience of walking down the street, stopping dead in my tracks because I smelled something. Huh. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I knew it. And it was just, and it, it was like these like malasadas or donuts okay. that women would deep fry on the side of the road. And I clearly remember that from when I was a kid because I could just see myself like having five of them because I was a little bit oh. of a, a hefty child. Um, <laughs> but it, all the way to people saying, and this was the more important part for me personally was people there called me Ibamba. And Ibamba means white. But in it, in that by white, they usually mean American. I, I don't use that term, but from the US or okay. European. That's what okay. they thought. But it strictly translates to avocado. And I would say back to them after I learned what it meant, I would say, no, 
I'm a spoiled avocado. So not quite, but not. And so I'd say, I'm Ibamba Mukudu. And they would laugh and say, oh, you, you get it. This is funny. And they'd say, what's your name? And I'd say, my name's Kamba. And they'd say, but that's a word in my language. How is that? I'd say, my dad is from Congo, Kinshasa. And they literally would say, mais ça veut dire que tu es mon, mon frère. That means you're my brother. Yes. And they would invite me into their house. So I realized that whereas I could see my life as not fitting in anywhere, because in the US I'm black and outcast, there I was white and outcast. Mm -hmm. I could instead see it as I have a passport that helps me talk to anyone. And that's the way I took it. So that was why it was so important to me. And then the idea of going to LSC wasn't just let's see Europe. It was to do the schooling part right. um, of, I want to do something around social policy in mm -hmm. developing countries. And I thought if I'm going to work internationally, go to a good international school. So it felt like a good place to go. It was very different not being able to have all my books paid for sure. and to have somebody do my laundry. But after coming from the Peace Corps, I felt like I was more ready to actually throw myself into academic studies. And Kama, tell me about your re recollections of playing basketball at the LSE, because as I remember it, you were head and shoulders above all the competition, with the exception of a couple of players on our team. And I found myself when we were playing games, just my jaw on the floor, just watching you play. So yeah, I don't, what I don't was know. it like for you? It must have felt pretty easy. Yeah, I don't know about that. Like I was decent and I could think the game and physically at that point, I was still like together and could move. It's a different story now. And by the way, Jahan could only get by me because he carries the ball on his crossover. I am still heated about that. That, See, that, now, is, such, that is such a carry. That's a shot across the bow. Now he's got to come on the show and defend it, himself. It is. It is. <laughs> that is a carry. And even though he was quicker than me and could have gotten by me a thousand other ways, that one doesn't count, which is I yell at the TV and NBA games. I'm like, that's a carry. Like you It is. They carry that. a lot. Anyway, carry but, a lot, yeah. but basketball, it was nice to be good because after Stanford, I didn't think that I was good. I had my confidence eroded, like maybe I'm mm -hmm. not that good. Mm -hmm. Maybe coaches saw, maybe they were right. But to go there and against a little bit younger competition typically, but and be able to do what I want, that was fun. I would have never recruited myself because my engine didn't go fast enough. And I, I, I floated in and out of games. Like I was, I, I would have been a mental case. Like I, so as it's interesting to think back. I actually, somebody sent me a video of right after I graduated LSE playing basketball. And I was like, I would have recruited that other kid. I would have potentially recruited him. And I would have had huge question marks about myself just because of the way I was like in it, like I would float in and out. But Aaron, it was like, I'm like you, I made the team because I could make a left-handed lay-in. <laughs> and that was the level that we were at. It was fun to be able to move where I wanted and get the ball to places. And the two things that I remember basketball wise, there was one game that I ended with a windmill dunk. Then mm -hmm. I loved that because the rim was two inches short. And I was always <laughs> just couldn't quite get it there, but I could tell during warmups that it was just a little bit short. So that was a fun one. And the other one was when we played in the Busa champ, the Brit, whatever, Britain Unified Scholastic Athlete, I don't know, but the basketball for all of Britain. And we had maybe imbibed a little bit too much the night before and maybe seen the team we were playing against. Maybe we were a little overconfident. <laughs> way too obnoxious. 
And I had rolled my ankle at the end of that previous game. So I was limping around, but nothing that whiskey can't help with. And I just remember us getting trounced, but having, I had the best time. It was, it was so fun. We lost by 20-ish points and it wasn't even that close. That's right. And it was just, it was so fun. And to me, again, the camaraderie of that, that was the part. And you don't even remember this. Did you live in Rosebury Hall? I did, yeah. Yes. You guys put on a karaoke event after one of our games <laughs> and we were the basketball guys because in it in london at lse all the halls and residences are all across the city so we took a bus and we showed up there at seven o'clock we were the only ones and we just had a ball and then other people finally joined in but i was like that that to me was the fun stuff of basketball Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, it was a great year. I really uh, look back on it with fond memories as it sounds like you do too. So then I, I still can't hear Mambo number five though, without just losing it. I'm like, really? Did we sing to Mambo number five? We did. And we made it to the finals. I get somebody Mamba, who can you, actually sing. You, you might, you might need some therapy for that one. I, I, well, I want to, I want to fast forward in the interest of time to uh, the work that you've done using sports as a tool. As you mentioned, after LSE, you came back to the U.S. You became a nonprofit executive for, for several different organizations, Summer Search, All Stars Helping Kids, and then you're the chairman of the board for the 50 Fund. And I know you mentioned as well that now you're working for your alma mater, Stanford University. But tell us a little bit about your endeavors using sports for creating social change. Yeah, thanks for the question. So I, I do think it's the reverse. I think I'm pretty keyed in on social change and particular changes, either at the, particularly at the individual level. So how can I help people challenge assumptions and just mm -hmm. challenge the expected? Like when we see things, it's just natural because of mirror neurons, we do the same thing. I want people to be more intentional and thoughtful about mm. decisions they make. And I think there are ways to help students get there. The first job I had, Aaron, was with, with Summer Search, which was leadership development for low-income high school kids. That, and we would send students on experiential ed trips during the summer where they, a lot of times, the first one was backpacking, outward bound, Knowles, mm -hmm. one of those. Carry a 60-pound backpack for three weeks. You're going to examine your life. And that's where it hit me. That's the part that I care about. How do, you get, how do we help students change their lives? Sports, like I said, are to me one of the most powerful metaphors to get kids in particular to think about how do they want to live their lives and how can they do that? This doing the experiential outdoor education trips was another way to get there, but which solidified for me that sports can also play that role. So that's the through line for me is about how can I create social change? And I still have ideas about things I want to do in the future. Like how can I help change athletes' relationship to money mm -hmm. and how they deal with it? Because I think that will help them change their lives in a very positive way. But sports are, are a beautiful attractant to people that's and right. they're a beautiful metaphor. So. At All Stars, we would try to find high profile athletes and or entertainers and have them come raise money that we would then give out. So it was a little bit of a bait and switch, but if people are willing to pay $10,000 to sit at a table and watch Darius Rucker play, mm -hmm. great. Other than my overhead, I'm gonna give the rest back out. We worked with Justin Tuck. How can we help him create his platform, a former New York Giants football sure, player, won sure. a couple of Super Bowls. How can we help him create a platform 
to capitalize now to make a positive difference in the world. And I think that's the thing that I got called by the chairman of the 50 fund, the person who put the bid together and then was moving forward with a guy named Daniel Lurie. He said, hey, we're thinking of this business model where for every dollar we raise, we carve out 25 cents and give it back to the community through nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's a horrible business model, totally the right thing to do. And he said, (laughs) do you wanna be involved? I said, I don't even know what that means, but yes, count me in because it was, how do we make the Super Bowl, the the largest single day sporting event, Mm -hmm. how do we make it have impact beyond just the game and the concession dollars and the TV rights? And that to me was one of the wonderful things that that I got to be a part of. I I think sports are, are, are great for attracting people as well as the development of people, depending on the type of model it is. And was there a particular group that the 50 Fund raised money for that you remember and you'd maybe like to highlight? So the thing that I appreciate most is that we were thoughtful about it because we set out a goal of, we want to raise and give out the most of any Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. That was one goal. And I said, we could do that on accident. Maybe that happens. Somebody gives a gazillion dollars and all of a sudden we've hit that goal. It still wouldn't feel right. I also said the twin goal is we want it to be the most intentional around that as well. And so I love the fact that we thought about micro, meso, and macro. So Mm -hmm. at the micro level and the fact that we wanted this to live on, we said for 52 straight weeks leading up to the Super Bowl, Mm -hmm. we want to highlight a grassroots nonprofit and we'll use one of our, our providers as a nonprofit, uh, Baycat, I think it was, that does videos and they use high school age students, some who have been in touch with juvenile justice system to do that. So all of a sudden we were giving them dollars and we were highlighting and creating these sizzle reels that were leave behinds for these organizations and they each got 10,000 bucks. I loved the fact that we thought, great, how can we use our particular platform in a particular way? And then the middle level of how can we have bigger grants to fewer organizations so it has more of a punch for them Mm -hmm. in terms of their budget. And then we said at the macro level, there's stuff going on nationally. How do we hook into that so we live beyond the Super Bowl? So we hooked into an initiative around reading and we gave a million bucks to them. So it was great to think about the $10,000 level. I think can't remember if we gave 50 or 250,000 for that middle level and then a million for the last one. I just loved the intentionality of what we did. And even just saying, hey, we work with organizations that give to youth and we define youth zero to 22, I think it was. So a very mm-hmm. broad swath, but not everybody. So that's the part that I appreciated most about, about the work we were able to do with the 50 fund. And I know that now you're working for Stanford University. What have you learned from working at those other organizations that you're still using today in your current work? It's a good question, Aaron. I think one of the things I, probably two, two exactly opposite things. So one is we can move things forward, mm-hmm. but it takes planning and then executing against and coalescing a team to get there. And Mm -hmm. it almost doesn't matter where you focus that, but it can be done. So whether that be at All Stars, whether that be the 50 Fund, whether that be the Haas Center. The other thing that I've realized is that as much as I like to be part of that lead group is that I'm not important. 
Like I'm a little bit of an archetype or a facsimile. It doesn't, I'm important, but I'm not. And, mm -hmm. and that's, I think that's something I learned at Stanford sitting on the bench. It takes all of us, even though I may be in the background. And so in some ways I'm important, but in other ways I wasn't. And, and I appreciate that I've started to come to that, although I'm still very egotistical, but to some extent, I don't think I take myself as seriously. And I think when working with others to catalyze things for them, I think it's important. So I, I don't remember if you remember chemistry and, and chemical reactions, but <laughs> I see myself as an enzyme. So okay. I, I help start the reaction, but then I actually disappear. And that ah. that's more the role I, I like to have. And I've learned that in each of the steps, whether that be my family life, my sports life, my professional life, that enzymes are really important, but at the end of the day, it's about the rest of the reaction. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. That's a fascinating metaphor. Kamba. So let me move on. I, I know we're running out of time. So I, I guess we'll move to the to last question. When I ask everybody, when I, I have them on the show, but what do you think the power of sports is to you? How would you define that? Ugh, the power of sports to me is everything. Cause it, it, like I said, it was my salvation. It was my safe space. It still continues to be like up until call it 18 months ago, I was still playing basketball with some old dudes on Saturday mm -hmm. morning. And that is my happy place. Like I'm a happy player. I just enjoy it. it it's mm -hmm. fun. So what is, it's given to me a lot of, a lot of grace and salvation. It's also presented me with opportunities. It's unbelievable that because I could go like that, I could get a scholarship, like a mm -hmm. full ride to one of the top institutions uh, in the world, one of the top universities. And then because I could do that again, I got to meet new people at LSE when I was there. Actually, basketball was one of the first ways I got to talk to the students I was working with in the Peace Corps. Because I went over mm -hmm. there and part of what I did was around sex ed. And no one wanted to talk to me, but then I started playing basketball with the guys and they were like, okay, you have some credit. So it's interesting how basketball in particular uh -huh. has opened tons of doors for me. And then the personal lessons I have learned from it, whether it's hey, it's okay to challenge authority as long as they're cool like Coach Bray. <laughs> and you can learn a lot from other people, but also all the other things beyond time, even if that means 15 minutes early, tuck in your shirt while you play, like present yourself. That's another one of the things Coach Vile, my high school coach taught me. Like I've learned a lot of those pieces. But to me, the I like metaphors and I think sports are the best metaphor and best teacher. So to me, the power of sport is that it can, frankly, I think it can teach us all how to be phenomenal global citizens and how to be better communities. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if we all learn to play like we do in sports, yes, there's going to be a Patrick Beverly every once in a while. That's fine, but that's not going to be the rule. <laughs> and you can't have selfish players. And I worry about how selfish, like how much navel gazing goes on around around the U.S. in particular, maybe just the areas in the U.S. that I'm at, I worry about that. And thinking about, like, even I, I was really rusty at soccer, but that was the way, instead of with the students, but with the villagers I was trying to do the sex ed with, mm -hmm. basketball didn't translate. So what did I do? I tried to meet them where they were instead of foisting myself upon them. And so I was a crappy soccer player and they would laugh at me and then say, oh, what are you talking about? And I think there's so much to be learned from sports that I wish we used that as the real 
outcome that we were trying to go for. What are we learning from this? How is this helping make you as an individual and us as a community better? Mm-hmm. I think that would be amazing. I think last time I said, I'd love for Stanford, which I think despite its current perturbation or whatever the word is, but it's tumult right now. Mm-hmm. I think even without that, I, I have a difference of opinion with how the athletic department presents itself because it always talks about, we have won 128 national titles and that is 19 more than our closest competitor, UCLA. Thanks for getting that in there, Gomez. You knew I would. <laughs> but it, to me, that's not the goal. That's one of the potential outputs, but the goal is 900 student athlete, potential leader, like what are we doing to develop them? How are we benchmarking ourselves on that? If Mm -hmm. we said the athletic department is the biggest intentional leadership development program on campus, holy crap, that would be amazing. And that to me, that's the potential power of sport. And that's the part that I, I hope more people focus on and why like people ask me my son doesn't play sports that much and when he did he started at the earliest time they could it was people like are you gonna have him do this as a kindergartner no why not because sports are are to help us do something i think it might be too early for a kindergartner to actually get the lessons from it Mm -hmm. so i have a very distinct view on the power of sport and what we can use it for. And I think it's really an important view that I, I hope you'll be sharing with more people, Kamba, and I hope they'll be listening to this episode to hear more about it. And I think that the idea is about using Stanford Athletics as a leadership development incubator, if you will. And I think that's just a phenomenal idea. My own observations there suggest that it would be really effective incubator. Um, totally. It's, it's unbelievable, the, the student athletes that come out of there. Absolutely. Including yourself, Kamba. So thank you again for taking part I know you're raising, you're making a funny face when I say that, maybe you just, but, but I really appreciate you doing this again, a second time, but I actually think you, you outdid yourself this second time. It was even better than the first time. Yeah. Set the bar low. That's what I always say. No, the first time was phenomenal. I tell you, I was kicking myself when I realized the record button wasn't on. This has been really fun, Kamba. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Happy to do it. And let's figure out a time to do this again. Not necessarily the, the podcast piece, but okay. yeah, yeah, of, over course. Video. of course, I would welcome you back on the podcast anytime though, anytime you want, but thank you, Kamba. Have a re- really good rest of your day. Okay. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, that will wrap up our show today. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Kamba as much as I have. I particularly like the way that Kamba thinks about sport as a potential teacher for us all, especially as we move toward becoming more responsible global citizens. As he says, we can learn to lead ourselves by examining how we play sports. And if we take Kamba's lead, we can all strive to challenge that which is expected of us. Have a great day, everyone. Mm-hmm.